Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 2016 University of Edinburgh Gifford Lecture Series. My name is Alvin Jackson. I am the Richard Lodge Professor of History and uh, a member of the Gifford Lectureships Committee here uh, at the university. I'm delighted to welcome back uh, our very distinguished speaker, Professor Catherine Tanner, the Markwand Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School, as she continues her Gifford series, Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism. And this evening, Professor Tanner will deliver her fourth lecture entitled Nothing But the Present. I now have very great pleasure indeed in handing you over to Professor Catherine Tanner. Maximum profitability doesn't simply require perfect compliance with company demands, but perfect attention to task. Whatever one might be asked to do, concentrated focus on the matter at hand is required for maximally efficient performance. Such a way of relating to present circumstance in a totally absorbed and focused fashion keeps one from stepping back from what one is currently doing and reassessing the situation for making decisions that might redirect one's energies, pull one in new directions. This way of relating to the present keeps one, in short, from imagining doing anything differently. The scarcity of time and resources enforced by profit-maximizing firms is what makes the present task urgent for workers and therefore preoccupying, all-consuming. One is no time to waste. The deadline is looming. The task, therefore, demands one's immediate attention. There is no time for extended reflection, no ability to defer a decision, a decision until tomorrow. And if one makes a mistake and uses up or damages materials required to complete the task, there are no more supplies waiting in the wings. There simply exists no slack, no spare time, no spare parts, no reserves of any sort to be forgiving of faults along the way. Everything has to be done right the first time. It's far from clear in some that one has either sufficient time or manpower, say, that one has enough of what one needs to even finish the task unless one gives it one's full, immediate, and total attention. Finance-dominated management practices in this way take advantage of and push to an extreme the mind-focusing, efficiency-maximizing effects of scarcity in, in everyday life. Indeed, totally preoccupied with present, with present performance, one engages oneself in the very sort of tight time and resource management that made the task urgent to begin with. One makes maximally efficient use of time and resources so as oneself to help rid the production process of any slack. One puts every moment and material to good use without the slightest waste with nothing left over. Efficiency effects are produced here by allowing one to start with, one might say, only a very small suitcase. I'm following behavioral, behavioral economist Sandhil Malanathan here and throughout, following his examples and analysis of poverty in my own way and for my own purposes. He uses this example of a, a small suitcase. A very small suitcase requires one, instead of just throwing things in haphazardly while talking on the phone with friends about one's upcoming trip, to give full attention to the packing, and that means packing very carefully by trying to fit the most in, leaving no space unused, rolling every item up as, as tightly as possible, weighing up all the trade-offs, what you'll be forced to leave behind of every decision to include something, and so on. Those with big suitcases, plenty of time and resources, have no such impetus to pack efficiently. Lots of time and resources make one inattentive to task thereby wasting both time and space. One procrastinates, putting off the task to a more opportune time that never comes. One doesn't pack everything one needs because one fails to make the most of the space. Or one miscalculates and weighs oneself down with items that turn out to be unnecessary, and so on. Everyone with limited time and resources in finance-dominated capitalism does the same, is subject, that is, to the same scarcity-propelled efficiency dynamics. So, for example, unemployed or underemployed, and therefore short on cash and without reserves of any kind, one, became, one becomes completely absorbed in the effort to make the, most, to make the rent due tomorrow. 
stretching the cash one has as far as it will go, purchasing everything else one needs at the least possible expense, carefully weighing out the cost of even the most minor purchases, and so on. And in each case, too, what especially focuses the mind is the likely consequence of failing in the effort to be so efficient and missing the mark, being fired or demoted, say, or being evicted in the case here. The situation in the present that calls for action isn't simply urgent, requiring immediate attention then, but something like an emergency. Everything needs to be thrown at it since the ramifications of failure are so dire. Something has to be done right away to make the rent, or the consequences will be disastrous. This sort of preoccupation with an urgent present task has further temporal effects. First of all, the present upon which one is focusing becomes depleted of its usual temporal dimensions. The present becomes so absorbing, in other words, that it pushes consideration of past and future out of present consciousness. One no longer thinks of past and future in the present. They, for all intents and purposes, disappear. Preoccupied with the present emergency shrinks down past and future dimensions of the present, leaving nothing but the present, a bare present to which one's consciousness is captive. One simply doesn't have the time, for example, or energy to think about the future, about the future consequences of the actions you're taking now to address the immediate problem. Because the future is not considered in the present, the future consequences of present action tend to be discounted much more heavily than would ordinarily be the case. That's the second temporal effect. The future is always discounted to some extent because it's not a sure thing and because it tends to be less salient, harder to imagine than the present. But such ten tendency is now severely aggravated. The costs and future of action taken now fail to be weighed up with any degree of appropriateness. They simply tend to be overwhelmed by any immediate present benefits of action taken now to attend to urgent tasks. One is therefore almost irresistibly inclined to borrow against the future even at rather severe cost. That is, one is very much inclined to use for present gain what could otherwise be put to good use later on, leaving that much less, less for subsequent purposes. One uses up the time and resources that could be put to use later on so that one has even less time and fewer resources when new urgent tasks roll around. Thus, using every moment now, one finds oneself behind at the start of any new project. By taking an advance on future wages to pay the rent this month, one has even less next month to pay the rent. Even if additional costs are accrued, for example, very high interest payments on payday loans, the seriousness of those costs are dismissed in the present. One simply has to have the money now and one will deal with the consequences later. They're simply not one's present concern. Even if complete exhaustion is the likely pr price to be paid later for putting every moment to good use now while on the job, one assumes that risk without giving it a second's thought. In this way, the scarcity that promotes preoccupation with the present is exacerbated in the future. One is even less prepared to cope with future eventualities than one was to address present ones. Future eventualities become, for that reason, all the more preoccupying forcing one into even more efficient use of ever more meager resources with the same stultifying effects on future planning so as to produce a kind of self-feeding spiral. The future always comes as a shock, not simply because one hadn't the time before to think about what was likely to happen, but because actions taken to address present tasks had a severe impact on resources necessary to cope with later ones. Insofar as the present is shorn of its other temporal dimensions, past and future evacuated from present consciousness, successive events become a disconnected series of presents. This is a third temporal consequence. What, is, what happened before is no longer held in present remembrance, nor is the future a matter of present anticipation. Rather than being collected together in present awareness, past and future are only registered as presents in their moment of happening and are gone as soon as they appear. Rather than being retained in the forms of memory and expectation in the present, they come into and out of consciousness as a discontinuous series of pure presence. Present consciousness becomes itself in this way a dispersed rather than collected consciousness. One is never presently aware of time building up, and therefore it becomes very difficult to construct a coherent narrative of what's been happening to you. One's life is just one thing after another, 
a sequence of fires coming out of nowhere, which one is repeatedly forced to try to put out. Moreover, when one does consider the past and present, uh, sorry, when one does consider the past and future in the present, one never thinks very far back or forward into either. This is a fourth consequence. Only the immediate past or future has any relevance. Anything beyond that drops away. A number of features of finance discipline capitalism encourage the production of such a present without, one might say, any temporal depth. Anything too far off in time, whether in the past or in the future, loses its salience. It drops off one's radar screen. The past and future horizons of present decision-making in this way become extremely short. Encouraging this development in finance-dominated capitalism is what sociologists called environmental dynamism. Market conditions are changing so rapidly that one is discouraged from thinking very far ahead or back. There's no point in thinking very far ahead since it's very hard to predict what circumstances will be like then. And there's little point in thinking very far back since so much has happened between then and now to make that past irrelevant to present circumstances. Market instability and volatility in this way exaggerate the importance of temporal strategies commonly used to cope with the uncertain future that is everyone's lot in life. Take what one can get now because it's unclear what tomorrow might bring. The pleasures of the past are gone, future ones are uncertain. The present is in any case the only time in which such pleasure is actually experienced. Enjoy what one can now, therefore, without bothering to give much thought to what happened in the past or what might come in the future. The only past or futures to be considered are ones with an immediate, unavoidable bearing on one's present happiness. With the instability of the future a much more salient matter than perhaps in any previous time in modern history, any moment one might lose one's job or one's shirt in the market, an Epicurean foreshortened view of the present might seem quite in order. As the former investment banker interv interviewed by the ethnographer Karen Ho put such sentiments, it's all about today and whether one can make money today, and if you can't make money today, you're out of there. You need to be thinking, I'm going to get as much as I can today because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, unquote. Or a fundamentally stoic approach to the present proves attractive in the interest of gaining greater control over one's life in disturbingly turbulent economic uh, circumstances. One has the power at present to turn a profit. Take those profits now before change, circumstance, change circumstances rest the opportunity of doing so away from you. You can't do anything about your past mistakes and who knows what the future might bring. Concentrate then on reacting appropriately to the opportunities presented by the market right now. That reaction in the present is indeed the only thing you can be certain to have control over. Join both Stoics and Epicureans in liberating oneself not only from worries about the future, but also from the burden of the past in order to concentrate on the present moment, in order either to enjoy it or to act within it. And I'm quoting Pierre Hadot there. He wasn't talking about finance. Uh, <laughs> extremely short time horizons in decision-making are also simply a function of the way profits are generated in finance capitalism. Profits are typically made in the short rather than long term. Investments that will prove profitable over, only over the long haul, say investing in heavy equipment, where profits from doing so are to be cashed out slowly as one sells more product, are typically avoided in favor of ones with the capacity to term, turn a profit very quickly, say taking over a company with the intention of selling it as soon as its stock value goes up. Even in long-term ventures, decision-making favors immediate results. Since the value of a company is constantly assessed on a stock market, management decisions favor actions with an immediate impact on stock value, say layoffs, rather than ones, say a new marketing strategy, whose success will become apparent only far in the future. When companies are managed simply to promote shareholder value, no premium is therefore put on long-term planning, planning to assure ongoing company profitability over an extended period of of time becomes almost passe. Long-term investments are to be avoided because of the market volatility typical of finance capitalism. The market can move out from under you in ways that make your investment decisions in the past no longer advisable. 
Short-term investments are, in other words, a, war, a way of avoiding the future risks incurred by investment decisions now. One can move on, cash out, and try your hand at something else that, that will have become the more profitable option later on. In rapidly changing conditions, long-term investments simply amplify your exposure to risk and limit your ability to move quickly to take advantage of newly unfolding opportunities. Contracts regarding financial assets typically for these reasons have very short expiration dates. One has the option of buying a currency, say, at a fixed price, not 10 years from now, but next week or a day from now. One doesn't want to be tied down by any investment decision for very long. Ideally, indeed, de deals should be completed almost immediately. The shorter the time between purchase and sale, the better. And therefore, something like simple arbitrage becomes the ideal. That is, one buys on one market and sells simultaneously on another in order to pocket the difference between the prices of much the same financial markets across them. Short-term finance-dominated investment decisions in this way run directly contrary to the usual company tactics for dealing with volatility. In producing anything for sale, one is likely to face une unexpected downturns in demand or interruptions in transport, say because bad weather kept shoppers from stores or trucks off the road. Long-term commitments become a way of smoothing over exposure to the risks produced by such volatility in the business environment. If one has a good product that customers want, ups and downs like this will even out over the long haul if one simply stays the course. Whereas in finance capitalism, volatility is no longer an external impediment to turning a profit, but internal to the business model, staying the course makes little sense. Profits are now directly geared to that volatility. Volatility is the means to them. Only if stock values go up and down rapidly and steeply can one hope to make an enormous amount of money from the stock market impact of management decisions. One turns such a profit only by reacting right away to the changing signals that the market is giving you. If you stay the course and fail to move in line with market volatility by, say, refusing to close stores or lay off workers after a bad winter cuts your sales and plays havoc with your inventory, the value of your company's stock might very well plummet. Profits, in short, are typically made in finance capitalism by directly playing on market volatility rather than by simply attempting to avoid its impact. Short-termism becomes, therefore, not merely a way of avoiding future risk, but a primary me means of profiting from the very volatility that produces risk. Prices go up and down, and one tries to capitalize on that very fact. Doing so, however, requires speed. Profiting from something in rapid movement requires equally rapid movement from you. As soon as the opportunity appears, pounce on it. There's no profit in waiting. The longer one holds one, one's position, the more likely it is that the opportunity for profit will be gone, seized by others and no longer available to you. If a stock is overpriced, sell it as quickly as possible before everyone else does and the price thereby comes down. Decision-making that considers the long term is beside the point when profit becomes in this way a function of speed, a matter of quick reaction time. Profit within capitalism is always a function of the turnover time on investment. The more rapid that turnover, the better. Better to sell every widget that one's equipment has the capacity of making as quickly as possible, rather than in drips and drabs over a very, over a very extended time frame. But finance capitalism, because it's not dependent on slow, slow processes of making and selling actual things, allows such turnover time to be nearly instantaneous. Ordinarily, one has to wait to produce things and then wait for them to be sold. But a derivatives contract, for example, creates its product as soon as it's drawn up. Its product is the linkage it creates at once between financial assets themselves. One enjoys right now, for instance, the assurance of being in the money if the value of the asset one holds drops below a certain point relative to some other asset. And such contracts can be settled just as quickly because nothing but money changes hands. If one bets the price of hogs will go up next week, the bet isn't settled through any actual exchange of hogs uh, with one's counterparty, which would take some time because hogs are heavy and fat and slow. But, by a, but the, the deal is settled by a simple cash transfer from loser to winner. And every such contract can itself be sold at once. One doesn't have to say, wait to see what the price of hogs 
will be next week, but can turn in a profit right now by selling the contract itself to somebody else. Profit making by way of arbitrage again, simultaneous buying in one market and selling in another, would become again in this way the extreme that proves finance capitalism's penchant for the short term. The simultaneity that characterizes buying and selling and arbitrage is typical of other forms of transaction in finance capitalism and helps contribute to the def deflation of past and future in present awareness. For example, it's common in financial transactions to take simultaneous long and short positions to avoid facing the unhedged consequences of either. In other words, a bet that a stock will decline is often simultaneously offset by a bet that it will rise in order to stem potential losses. Moreover, efficiency measures to increase profitability often use computerized groupware in which every team member interacts with every other in real time rather than along a linear step-by-step -step production line. In all such simultaneous processing, actions and reactions follow one another so quickly in nearly real time that they lose any easy sequencing with reference to past and future. What I'm responding uh, to comes at me so quickly that it loses its past character, and my reactions to it are so immediate as to no longer seem the future of any preceding prompt. Even spatially quite distant events appear concurrently with my present consciousness. No time lag is required to bring their occurrence to my attention. Instead, every event seems to be interacting with every other in real time to produce effects, and it therefore becomes very difficult to make sense of such effects by telling a story in which events unroll one from another over time. Unable to place oneself along the timeline, it becomes difficult to see oneself as part of any ongoing historical trajectory, moving from the past into the future, that, what might, that one might intervene within and interrupt. Instantaneous transaction times don't just have the effect of making anything very far in past or future irrelevant to present decision making. They also shrink the economically relevant present down to almost nothing. The time in which profits are taken is so accelerated, potentially, that it drops below the duration required for present awareness of it, below even the shortest attention span of lived consciousness. Transactions are processed via computer in nanoseconds, too quickly to be experienced. Not simply depleted of any memory of the past or anticipation of the future, the present moment for profit-taking comes itself in this way to have no duration. It extends no farther than the instant. I think I'll take a breath. <laughs> yes? All right. Voice is okay so far. One might think that such short-term profiteering would come back to bite one down the road in much the way short-termism on the part of time and resource-strapped workers and debtors does. They suffer later from actions taken in the present to put out fires. Those actions make them less well-prepared and even more time and resource-strapped when trying to cope with future eventualities. In similar fashion, uh, eschewing long-term investments in favor of management tactics with immediate effects on company stock valuations would eventually, one would think, hurt company profits and send the company stock tumbling. But typically, those paying the long-term costs of short-sightedness are not the same ones reaping the short-term profits. Indeed, that's one of the points of profit-taking in the short term. By the time the cost of that sort of profit-taking becomes apparent, you'll be gone. The ones who have to pay are the ones who simply fail to move as fast as you do. Thus, the CEO paid in unrestricted stock options can cash out and move on to a new job before the short-term tactics used to raise stock values take any obvious toll on a company's profit margins. It's the later holders of stock who suffer, along with company workers paid in wages rather than stock options, whose livelihood depends on longer-term employment at a company that therefore has to remain in business over the long haul. When the lack of investment in new equipment takes its toll and the company tanks, they are the ones whose liveliness, livelihood is compromised. Indeed, their paying the long-term costs of the lack of planning typically directly feeds 
short-term profit-taking by financial means. Layoffs and plant closings, one might surmise, are often the consequence of poor planning. The future turns out to be different from the expectations about it reflected, for example, in past hiring decisions. But those layoffs and plant closings at worker expense only make the company's stock rise because of the way they cut costs and increase company profits immediately. Short-term profit takers are indeed always standing at the ready to take advantage of the failures of others to do long-term planning. Who benefits from the high interest rates that people without money are desperate to take out to make ends meet? Or from the greater efficiencies and meager resource management that poor people and workers are forced into to service their own or company debt? The unfortunate consequences for oneself of bad future planning become the direct means of profit for someone with no particular interest in long-term investments or, or concern about the future consequences of their own short-term profit-taking. In general, people without money are the ones who become vulnerable to the future costs incurred by the short-sighted business decisions of people with it. People can't move with the speed of money. People without the money to compensate for their slowness are therefore always liable to get burned by those with the money to increase their speed. Money can be cashed out of investments in one stock and instantly repurposed to purchase some other stock. The movements of people, when following the ups and downs of the resulting movements in a company's stock price, fired from one company looking for work in another, are much stickier, more costly for them, and therefore slower. They move like hogs do, in short. Uh, without the same liquidity, that was a bit of a joke, the ability to move as quickly in and out of their investments, in a place, a job, a form of training, they become vulnerable to people enjoying the speed of movement, the liquidity that comes from having money or other capital assets. Across the board, just, not just in the case of bearing the cost of other people's short-sightedness, exploitation of others in finance-disciplined capitalism Comes, by, by, comes about by taking advantage in this way of relative differences in speed. It's the fact that companies can move their operation in operations in the way their employees can't that enables them to pay those workers less. The latter are held hostage to the former's mobility. Employees, in effect, pay with reduced wages and benefits for the decision of such companies to stay put. Nation states do the same, lowering, for example, corporate tax rates with a huge impact on state coffers in order to keep companies from picking their operations up and leaving. The degree and liquidity of one's resources have, in fact, a major impact on whether one's focus on the present has the capacity to affect, to affect one's future adversely. So, for example, the person whose bad long-range planning squeezes them for time on future projects but leaves them with cash to spare, is significantly better off than the person squeezed for both time and money, in that the latter can't pay anyone to help them. Out of cash and further in debt, the consequences of one's short-sightedness are largely irremediable. Short-termism does not in itself, simply by making the future less salient, bring about bad consequences for those with large reserves of liquid assets. This is in great part because their reasons for being preoccupied with the present are different from those of time and resource-strapped workers or the poor without cash savings. For those with a spare cash to invest, the present has urgency not because it's a fire, an emergency that one struggles to cope with, but because it's an opportunity for profit that simply needs to be seized quickly before it's gone. Borrowing does retain the attractiveness typical of those who are present preoccupied. One is indeed likely to take out a loan to limit the amount of one's money tied up in such an investment and to increase one's possible profits through leverage. But, so, but such loans are clearly discretionary rather than forced by indigence. One often, therefore, retains the funds to pay them off. They're taken out simply for convenience to enable freer movement in future by leaving more of one's own money available and for profit maximization purposes. In this way, those with large reserves of liquid assets tend to move in relatively carefree fashion from one present to the next without suffering any harm. The present recedes into the past without any bearing on the next present. 
which comes to one free and clear, without being burdened by anything that preceded it. Presents succeed, succeed each other in a disconnected fashion that's breezy and untroubled for all that. The series of disconnected presents produced by the short-term investments of those with money to burn is far from disconcerting or disturbing. Nothing like the series of unexpected storms that arrive one by one out of the blue because my efforts to cope with earlier ones left me completely unprepared for the next ones. People without liquidity actually need to plan if they're to survive. Especially for those without resources or liquid capital, the constant, constantly changing character of the present assumes the tenor of a paralyzing instability. One is not secure enough in the present to make it the basis for decision-making with a bearing on one's future. The present isn't anything one can count on to provide a reliable basis for, for decision-making that would take the future into account. How do I know that my judgments now about how best to improve my lot in life won't be disconfirmed tomorrow? What confidence do I have that a decision to seek further training over the next few years will pay off? Like a corporation sitting on its cash in times of crisis, people who are buffeted by any shock, often no matter how small, because of a lack of liquid reserves, a lack of cash in the bank, easily become paralyzed by indecision, unwilling to invest or take any action that might put them at risk later on. They become anything but, that is, risk-taking, resource-daring, opportunity-seizing entrepreneurs. Vulnerable to the downside risks of a constantly changing present, the present awareness of the resource trapped becomes fear-infused. One feels under constant threat. One is unsure whether, whether one can meet the challenges of the present. Fear of failure is always salient. And one re realizes that what one has presently achieved can be lost at any moment. One is always aware at every moment of the insecure hold one has on anything currently enjoyed. One relates to the present with a constant sense of how precarious it is. There's nothing secure about one's present job, one's present pay. Everything is always in danger, moment by moment, of slipping away. Even if one's myopic focus on the present were to allow room for imagining a future different from today, this fear-infused character of one's relationship to the present makes one reluctant to try to act to bring that future about. Being able to imagine a different future is one thing. The temporal effects of present preoccupation stop that. Wanting and willing such a different future is another matter, dependent in great part on one's affective relationship to the present. Feeling fearful, being anxious rather than hopeful about possibilities afforded by the present erases that. People generally tend to be loss-averse, that is, that is, they're more inclined to, to keep what they have than to put it at risk for gain, even when taking such a, a risk is a good bet. But the salience of downside risks for, for workers at every moment in finance-disciplined capitalism, the awareness that one's job might be cut, one's pay dock, benefits slashed, hours reduced, at any time with the slightest provocation at a moment's notice, exaggerates such loss-aversion. The more one has, the more one has to lose, and therefore the less likely one is to put it at risk for the sake of gain. In the present case, instead, the very evident dangers to anything presently enjoyed is what reinforces one's concern to avoid or stem losses whenever possible. One has nothing but the present to hang on to, which may very well not amount to much, just some crummy part-time job at low pay. But given the obvious threat to it, one hangs on to it very tightly and refuses to let it go, even when letting go has the potential to bring a much brighter future. Fear might impel one to act here. It's not necessarily paralyzing. But one is inclined to so act simply in the interest of self-preservation. Fearful of loss in the present, one becomes satisfied with, or at least resigned to, the way things are and does what one can to keep things in place by simply repelling any threat to the status quo as a form of self-defense. Now, Christianity, here we go. Christianity, here we go. We're going some, something else. Now, Christianity, as I've been characterizing it so far, also exhibits a preoccupation with the present. The present has a certain urgency that concentrates attention on it. By virtue of such an overlap in temporal sensibility, if you want, a Christian approach to the present has the capacity to infiltrate the way finance 
disciplined capitalism encourages one to relate to it, and in so doing disrupt it, since the reasons and effects of such a focus on the present moment are diametrically opposed in the two cases. So that's what I'm going to demonstrate. There is an urgency to the present moment in Christianity, as I've been portraying it, and that each and every moment becomes the time for response to the constantly posed demand for conversion to God through Christ. There isn't a moment to lose when considering whether to, vote, to devote one's life to God. One shouldn't delay. The future will bring no improvement in circumstances. Putting the decision off will only bring one closer to the death that will one day take away from one irrevocably the possibility of such a life-changing conversion. Wake up every day as if it were your first and your last, so that you will give the greatest attention to the moment allotted to you, and in that sense, practice dying daily, as Paul recommends. Denied the ability to rest on one's laurels because of sin, one must continue to attend at every moment to the question of whether one has, in fact, turned one's life around, the degree to which one's current behavior would suggest as much. The present does not, however, become urgent here due to scarcity. One has everything one needs, more than one needs, to turn one's life around, grace, the grace of Christ. In marked contrast to the efficiency-inducing scarcities of finance-disciplined capitalism, it's the very fulsomeness of the provisions for conversion that makes the present an urgent matter, an opportunity to be seized with, with alacrity and put to good use. There's no point in looking longingly to any past or future with the capacity to make things easier. The time is ripe for action right now and has never been or will be any better. Delaying a present decision to turn one's life around and neglecting to make the best of what's currently on offer out of a distracted sense of what was or might be suggests one is simply never likely to turn one's life around, no matter how many times one is offered the opportunity to do so in future. Any such distraction from the present moment is always available as an excuse in future, so as to produce thereby a never-ending deferral of decision. The present is urgent here not because the opportunities of the present moment might be lost, but because they're just so good, so perfectly suited to the predicament one is in and the needs one has because of their not-to-be-passed-up character, so to speak. Instead of being here today and gone tomorrow, what allows one to turn one's life around in the present, the grace of Christ, is permanently on offer. It has no fleeting character. What prompts one to seize it right away is not the fear of missed opportunity then, but the immediate overwhelming attractiveness of the offer, one might say. Nor is attention to the present moment sharpened here by an unforgiving environment in which, no, in which one knows the least misstep could prove one's undoing. To the contrary, one attends to the task of the present, conversion to God, with the assurance of fault forgiveness. No failing in the past or present can disrupt the efficacy of a grace designed specifically to save sinners. One is more than enough to get by, plenty of slack in the form of grace, to make up for, cover over, missteps in the effort to turn one's life around. There's therefore no point harping on the past or worrying oneself about the, free, about the future. The present is one's only concern. Not because we can't do anything about past mistakes or about an uncertain future, because neither is under one's control, but because one can let go of the past without consequence once sins are forgiven and because the future will never be any more threatening than the present is. Contrary to the stoic-inflected temporal sensibility of financial players, the present is no more under one's control than the past was or the future will be. At every moment in time, one is enabled to turn oneself to God only by God's grace and not by one's own power. The difficulties one may have in future in trying to turn one's life around are therefore never greater than the ones one suffers now. The worries of today are more than sufficient as a matter for concern. The fault forgiveness surrounding the urgency of conversion in Christianity means that mistakes can't be compounded here to produce the sort of scarcity trap typical of finance di discipline preoccupations with the present. One isn't able to make one's situation worse by time and resource depleting actions taken to cope with present circumstances. One's ongoing sinfulness has, hasn't the power like an unwisely assumed future debt obligation, to deplete the resources necessary to meet future demands on those resources. It's all right if the demands of the present keep one from planning for the future by storing up resources sufficient to meet unexpected eventualities to come. 
The fulsome character of grace means in any case that the need for such borrowing against the future disappears. One has all one needs now to meet the present challenge. And the resources necessary for conversion are simply not ones amenable, not ones amenable to such efforts to storehouse them. Attempts to do so, in fact, mistake their nature. They cannot be added to or subtracted from by one's own actions. Efforts to keep past and future from distracting from the urgent task of turning one's life around now do not, however, in Christianity, deplete the present moment of its time dimensions in the way relations to the present within finance, discipline, and capitalism do. Turning to God is a life task, something that should characterize one's life as a whole, one's, un- one's entire past and entire future, even, so- even if such a task needs to be resumed every day as if from scratch. In maximum contrast to the short-term time horizons of profiteering and finance-disciplined capitalism, here one's time horizon is exceedingly long. In acting now, one imagines oneself, for example, brought before God's judgment seat after one's death. At every moment, one is encouraged to assess the profitability, so to speak, of one's own life from its end in the eyes of someone, God, with, with the capacity to see the whole of it to its very depths. One imagines oneself engaged in such a task, moreover, in the company of all those similarly concerned, those who came before one, the blessed dead, and all those who will in future go to make up the communion of saints before the world's end. One holds them in one's mind now, as if they existed concurrently with one's own efforts at the moment to make one's life over in God's image. In so doing, one participates in the present in God's own awareness of time, an awareness with the capacity to hold together at once, to form into a simultaneous whole, the entirety of such such past, present, and future efforts at God devotion. Aware of the whole of earthly time in these ways, one is thereby temporally oriented, placed within the flow of time for all one's preoccupation with the present moment. One knows where one stands with reference to past and future, insofar, for instance, as one is helped by the example, both good and bad, of all those who have gone before, and insofar as one hopes in turn to aid in similar fashion all those who will come after. One is, pl- one is placed in that moment of temporal transition between the whole of one's past and the whole of the future. Far from being depleted or empty, the present is pregnant with significance because in a certain fashion, by way of its God reference, the whole of time is present within it. The present takes on its significance because it contains the whole of time offered in a non-divisible and co-present way in the God to whom one is oriented. Whenever God is present, as God is in the grace that enables one to turn to God, God is present as a whole rather than simply in part. What God contains, the whole of times at once, becomes thereby ours as well in the present. This is a remarkably replete present moment filled with an eternity that, one, that when present is entirely so. The present moment may have, no, may have no duration. It may fly by, as Augustine suggests, and finance disciplined economic transactions do their best to confirm, from the future into the past with such speed as to have no extent. The present moment of turning to God retains, nonetheless, a quality that opens it up to much more than itself, to time's far beyond itself, to God's own eternity. However little, little or much one experiences of God, however little or much, for example, one understands of what one is experiencing, it's the whole of God that one is so experiencing or knowing. What one experiences in the moment is in that sense always complete and entire as it stands and cannot be added to. The fulfillment that would come from turning oneself completely to God in the instant could not be improved in quality even were that moment to be infinitely extended. A life suffering from a kind of unintegrated dispersal is collected together, unified beyond its own capacities, by attention to a God beyond it. One's life does indeed form a series of disconnected presence in that the same task of turning the whole of one's existence to God has to be repeated, taken up again at each succeeding moment. Those moments do not, for reasons discussed in the last lecture, build on one another. 
and such a task must be repeatedly assumed with proper attention to differences in circumstance that especially in finance disciplined capitalism are liable in themselves to form a disconnected sequence of simply one thing after another. At one moment, for example, one needs to figure out how to properly express one's devotion to God with a good-paying job. And the very next moment, one needs to figure out how to do so without one. At one moment, one needs to establish how one's devotion to God can be expressed as a mortgage broker with a potentially lavish lifestyle, probably by quitting. At the next moment, after the financial crisis hits, how that might be done while working at a car wash, while working as a car wash attendant, living out of one's suitcase on a friend's couch. However much one's successive presence otherwise form a disorganized jumble, one is always trying to do the same thing, turn one's full attention to God in ways that no change in circumstances can thwart. One's fundamental project doesn't change across such an otherwise disconnected series of presence. One retains a single point of orientation that unifies one's life as a whole. It's the unusual character of the object of one's attention that enables one to do this. Unlike the specifics of present circumstance, what it is that one is attending to, God, never comes and goes. One is never simply attending to the rapidly changing present itself, the opportunities it offers for profit, in the way finance disciplined capitalism encourages one to do, with a simple reactivity that would break up one's life into bits in conformity with the dispersal of such changing presence. One is instead looking in a discriminating way at every present moment, examining it for the opportunities it, it offers to direct it beyond itself to something that, unlike itself, never changes. One is looking through every present moment, so to speak, to something that, unlike monetary profit, is not itself part of the same ever-changing, unpredictably volatile mix, something with an absolute value, therefore, and that it's not dependent on the ups and downs of a passing present. The cure for disorienting dispersal, a life of distraction in which one is tossed hither and yon to and fro by the winds of fortune, becomes in this way the same as the cure for simple, for simple temporal distension, the constant passing of time from future to present into the past, in which nothing is ultimately retained and everything returns to the nothing from which it came. Following Augustine there again. The cure is time's reference to the eternal. In the beginning, as Augustine says, being always in God's presence and clinging to God with all its love, the creature has no future to anticipate and no past to remember, and thus it persists without change and does not diverge into past and future time. Unquote. That's from the Confessions. When the effects of sin are dispelled and one returns to what creation was meant to be, every moment and what has become through sin a passing time of disconnect, disconnected sequence will find itself repeatedly referred moment by moment in an equally direct fashion to a God that never changes, who never changes. All such moments will thereby be collected together in coherent fashion, not with reference to one another, but by way of a reference they all share to the same Invariably, invariably present God. All the disconnected moments of one's passing life would be collected together, one might say, in every single such, every single such moment of perfect Godwardness, so that rather than passing away, such a moment would expand its duration to become, as Kierkegaard says, a day that never ends. Glorying in God's own eternity, one would come to enjoy oneself a never-ending day a day in which one remains forever present to oneself, aware of oneself, in God. Whatever goes on to happen in one's life, and however short one's remaining time, by remaining in God, one would remain forever aware of oneself, present to oneself, in God. The longest day, the longest present self-awareness, might in this way be granted to one on even the shortest day of one's death. Today you are, right now, at the hour of one's death, with me in paradise." The mere attempt now under conditions of sin to collect one's life together by way of its God reference relaxes concern about one's own abilities to keep it all together and thereby dispels anxious efforts at self-collection in the present. Unlike, say, a stoic effort to escape self-dispersal in a volatile environment, here it's God, the object of one's will, rather than the ability to unify one's own will successfully in every present moment that makes the difference. 
It's not so much the unwavering constancy of one's own life project that assures one's ability to step back and collect oneself whatever happens, but the constancy of that ever-compromised project's object. Whenever and however, in whatever fashion one turns to it, it remains. The two, one's self-project and its object, are not convertible here in the way they are for Stoicism, because here the self is not fundamentally providing itself with the resources necessary for unifying the passing present. Those resources come from elsewhere, from the object that orients one and is nothing like oneself. Contrary to anxious efforts to achieve a fully consolidated will, here one expects repeated failures of attention through distraction and forms of divided desire, and one believes one has nothing to fear from them. Grace remains untouched for all that and holds out to one as ever sufficient power to turn. The world's turbulence, its own random dispersal, in fact, gives one nothing to fear in the present in the way a worldview like Stoicism, which throws one upon one's own resources, suggests it does. One needn't fear, for example, the way such turbulence threatens to take out of one's hands the ability to control the direction of one's own life. One needn't fear that that turbulence, even if it has demonstrated its power in the past to get the better of one, tossing one to and fro. One's past failings hold no terrors. One's present efforts to devote oneself to God can be resumed without impediment, enabled by God's grace as they are, whatever one's proven imperfections. Nor need, near, nor need fear of the future prompt in the present anxiety-filled efforts to hold on to the moment at hand in a self-protective attempt to keep evil the, even the little one has from passing. If the never-surpassed state in this life of constantly reinitiated conversion is any model for how to approach the present, believe that this moment of anxiety-filled insecurity too will pass, and with it, all that one has attempted to secure for oneself in extraordinarily adverse circumstances. Especially given the indignities of that very little allowed to one by finance-disciplined capitalism and the injustices intended upon trying to have more, such a passing of the present is to be welcomed. A mindset of self-protection, resigning one to the present order out of fear, is to be replaced by one of eager openness to an unheard of future to come. Thank you. Thanks so much for such a... Michael Northcott, uh, Divinity. Thanks so much for such an engaging account of the culture of high-speed capitalism and its effects on the way we think. Um, I'm very interested in the way that thinking about one's life constantly in terms of the last judgment has shaped capitalism. So in this country, by the end of the Middle Ages, um, two-thirds of the land belonged to the church because everyone gave as much as they could before they died to the church in order to resolve the accounts. <laughs> Uh, that you've just so helpfully described. But, of course, this led to um, a sense of imbalance, and Henry VIII, of course, uses it as an excuse for uh, dissolving the monasteries, and arguably that was an absolutely seminal event in the birth of capitalism, though not one that um, Max Weber writes very much about. But I just wondered... Um, <laughs> so I was wondering about that, but the, other, my, the only other thought I had was, well, I had a number of thoughts. It was a very provoking lecture, really interesting. But the other one I thought was, uh, I mean, I'm doing a lot of work with um, Christian attitudes to time in the present in relation to the environmental crisis. And I've been surprised how little, actually, I found amongst Christians um, in go uh, uh, very much future thinking. Uh, so, they do, so presentism seems to be quite powerful these days in the church as well. And are there practices that would help recover a good kind of present-future mediation of the kind you've described? Yeah, no, that's a great question. <coughs> this one? Yeah, the next lecture is about the future. But I'm trying to suggest that uh, the kind of present focus uh, in Christianity that I'm talking about here is not one that excludes consideration of the future. It's a present focus where the uh, longest uh, term <laughs> reference out into the future is a part of present consciousness. So I'm, um, yes, I th <laughs> yeah. If you were simply 
uh, concerned about the present without any attention to the future. That would, yeah, that, that's a very large pro uh, problem, um, especially for coping with the environmental crisis. But uh, I'm suggesting that that's the kind of focus on the present. That's the kind of short-termism that you find in, in finance-disciplined capitalism that probably encourages lack of attention to the environmental consequences of infinite growth or whatever, or the attempt to... Uh, but I'm, yeah, I am suggesting that uh, this Christian way of looking at the present does involve a very long-term time horizon that would have to be taken into account at exactly the same time. So it's not a kind of trade-off between a concern for the present moment and a concern for the future. Um, but yeah, the, the next lecture will <laughs> discuss the future. Yeah. So yeah, I don't want to neglect that for, for reasons, yeah, some of the reasons you have at the forefront of your mind too. The way in which... You know, in the past, people lived with this much more than in the present. This constant sense of this moment could be my last. And this produced this perverse result, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, particularly very well. the rise of mercantilism. Yep. And I'm very interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a very interesting point. I mean, I think that's compatible with what I'm talking about. The, the kind of present focus of seizing the moment for profit-taking is very much one in which, yeah, if you have the option of seizing... Uh, territory and lands from somebody else, uh, yeah, do so. <laughs> uh, because, uh, yeah, you don't want the uh, opportunity to pass you by if you have the moment to take, to expropriate. Uh, I'm misinterpreting what, what was your question again? I misinterpreted your question? Because people are so concerned about their final account. Oh, the, yeah, final judgment. They made a lot mm -hmm. of money. Oh, yeah, which yeah. they knew was often in a way that was contrary to a Christian ethic because right, they right. probably borrowed money or the yeah, stolen yeah, land. Yeah. Then they'd give lots to the church to try to resolve the accounts oh, oh, oh. towards oh, the end. Oh, I this see. Had this yeah, odd yeah, effect of ultimately you. corrupting mm -hmm. the church. Right, right, right. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, um, I mean, I think I'll, you know, what I have to say about that will be in the, the next lecture. That's a kind of uh, deferral of accounts, you know, that you're trying to... Uh, uh, make your accounts look better in expectation of an end that is far off, you know, a final judgment. Yeah. So, yeah. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I was uh, thinking about the whole, we meet God in the present and uh, we meet all of God and therefore get this glimpse of eternity and all the Augustine things you're picking up. Um, and I was wondering about how far you think that um, this meeting God in the present is a pneumatologically defined thing. Um, because in one sense, in an, in an inaccurate sense, but in one sense, Jesus is in the past, and we associate through scripture, and he's a historical figure who lived and died in a certain period of time. And in another, again, slightly incorrect sense, we often think about the Father as in the future, as, as on the, the throne of judgment mm -hmm. on the final day, and it is through the Spirit that we experience God very much here and now, and you see that powerfully in Pentecostal and charismatic movements. And so I'm wondering how far you think that's a, a pneumatological a part of uh, your lecture series. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. Uh, and I'll talk about it in the last lecture. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, uh, yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, I wasn't developing it in any kind of Trinitarian way here because it was just too complicated and would take too much time. Um, but yeah, I'll talk about something like that in one of the lectures uh, that remain. Um, is there a way that the um, cyclical nature of markets can be tied back to a, a nonlinear view of time? Uh, just because this view of Christianity is taking the the New Testament as that linear view, but we do have that uh, that inheritance from the Hebrew Bible with a, a cyclical and there's a season for everything kind of time going. That is there a way to tie that into maybe longer term planning that happens? No, oh, no, that's a very interesting. Uh Point. Yeah, it was often claimed that uh, yeah, Judaic or Christian understanding of time is linear, uh, in contrast to you know kind of circular, eternal return kind of things. Um, I don't find those contrasts particularly helpful for making sense of uh, a Christian understanding of time, like the what I was presenting here. Uh, I was stressing that you could place yourself on a temporal kind of continuum from past to future, but I was also stressing simultaneity in ways that made 
a temporal sequence like that kind of irrelevant uh, because you are always starting over. Uh, so yeah, for reasons like that, I don't think it's, if I'm following correctly, that it's uh, all that helpful to make sharp distinctions like that or to associate uh, Christianity primarily or Judaism for that matter with this kind of historical linear thing. I don't think that's actually true. So I mean like a liturgical time mm-hmm. in both Judaism, from what I understand, in both Ju- Judaism and uh, Christianity tends to be cyclical. You do exactly the same time, the same thing every year. You return to what you did last year exactly the same time. You repeat things over and over and over again. That's not a linear sense of time. It might be a linear story. You know, you start with Christ's birth and then dies, and then, you know, Holy Spirit comes. Blah blah blah. But you keep repeating that every year in a kind of cyclical fashion. Uh, thank you. I'd like to ask uh, your point of view when you in putting the dimension of migration on this present and... Yeah, moving. People mo- move. Yeah, p- people move when actually the memory and the expectation already collapse. Right. Uh, even the present, maybe, already co- collapse. Yeah, no, I think... Uh, I mean, what I was saying about uh, forms of exploitation that depend on relative differences in speed... Often the I'm you know I'm not making those up from whole cloth. <laughs> Other people have said that, and often the issue is how fast people can move in uh, in actually migrating, and the way in which uh, they're slowed. Uh, I mean, it's physically impossible unless we had Star Trek transporters uh, for people to move instantaneously from one place to an, to another. Uh, and the way capitalism kind of makes money off of the fact that people can't move that quickly um, and that they're, they can be left behind by corporations and, yeah, that kind of thing. Yep. So, yeah, migration studies would be crucial to this theory of exploitation and, as a matter of fact, are, but, yep, it's pretty good. Just to piggyback on the migration question, do you think generations today are less willing to migrate we saw in the, the Dust Bowl period in the 30s, we saw in the uh, migration to the West in the United States, willingness by people who had little or nothing to pick up and move. Yeah, no, th- those, are really, uh, that's, those are really crucial questions. Uh, I mean, ordinarily, it is, I mean, just ordinarily, normally, it's difficult to be, for people to move because they have attachments to place and people and communities. Yeah, they don't like to move. There, there are costs to moving. Whereas, uh, I mean, if you're a corporation that doesn't particularly have any ties to a particular community, there aren't any particular costs to a corporation from moving, aside, aside from the fact that they'd have to actually physically, you know, uh, shut down one operation and start it off up someplace else. But if you're talking about this kind of theory of exploitation where it has to do with speed of movement, well, yeah. It, there are lots of different historical and economic circumstances that would slow people down or speed them up. Um, so, like, if you can't sell your house, um, you know, you're invested in a house, you have a mortgage and you can't sell it, you can't move. Uh, things of that kind. So, yeah, there's some really interesting, complicated relationships around that. Um, I mean, in the United States, I mean, I don't know the statistics about all this, but uh, it was the case uh, before the housing crisis that people moved much more, and now they move much less, uh, for obvious reasons having to do with the housing crisis. But yeah, that would all be very, very interesting to figure out, and you'd have to do it uh, in a local way. I mean, I don't don't think you could generalize very easily across... um, you know, national borders, et cetera. Uh, so, well, we go into this. It's very interesting. Um, yeah. Why women tend to be migrants or why men tend to be migrants. Uh, transnational migration, uh, as far as I understand it, is still heavily, heavily dominated by women for a variety of reasons. Things like that. Yep. Your description of um, what life's like for people who are trying to grasp opportunities is very vivid. I was just... I suppose I'm... I need to walk out the door wondering whether it's, or being clear if, if I can, about whether it's empirically based, the particularly the psychological aspects of it. I mean, is that based on, what's, what's that based on? 
Yeah, it's those, incredible, that, very I have good, to say, but I, yeah, yeah, I just... Those are I just, very good questions. I mean, the majority of the <coughs> kind of data I was uh, drawing upon, that's sociological data and data from uh, behavioral economists. Um, so, I mean, I think they have both statistical... I mean, they actually do empirical studies to see what people are doing, like, you know, how many people in poverty will try to take out a payday loan or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's statistics about that. Uh, but they also try to, you know, come up with an explanation for it. Why would you do that or be inclined to do that when it doesn't seem to be in your best interest because you're not going to be able to pay those, pay back those loans, you know. You're going to be trapped by them, so why would you do it? Um, so there, there are psychological models that are in play, but there are, there's also empirical evidence, and uh, behavioral economists also tend to do experiments um, you know, to kind of simulate. I mean, I, I forget. The, I'm not a very good experimenter, but you know, are you more inclined to borrow when you have X versus when, you, and then just set up an experiment to tell? Uh, yeah. So I think it's pretty well grounded, and you know, I haven't done the research, but I think the research is very, very, very clear and pretty much incontrovertible. Thank you, Professor. You're uh, astonishingly. Um Overwhelming, uh, as usual. That's um, my aim. That was your aim. Success. Uh, success, absolutely. Uh, my question is probably, again, a stupid one like my last question uh, a, a, a time or, or two ago. These people that do these things, the people that are driving this, that are jumping from one opportunity of profit to another, do they just not care about anybody else? Are they are they saying, well, to hell with you lot. We are going to we are going to maximise everything, and do they not understand that sooner or later everyone else is going to die out, and what's going to be left? They're, they'll have no servants to black their boots. They'll have. I think they'll have robots. Uh, no, that's uh, but no, they're. I mean, that's an interesting sociological question too. I mean, I don't think people, you know, people are made uncaring by their circumstances in great part, not that they don't cooperate. But, I mean, there's plenty about the present economic situation that would convince you that you don't have to worry about even the harm that you recognize that you're doing, you know, because it won't affect you, you know. I mean, like, you know, you can live in a very isolated community. You never have to see these people. You can make up all kinds of stories about them because they're not there to contradict you. They don't have any power to say that's not what's going on. Um, you know, th as I said in the first lecture, these ways of making money are not really dependent on lots of other people being very well off. Uh, so, I mean, you're not kind of pulled, you know, for economic reasons to have an interest in their well-being because your your own profit profiting doesn't depend on it. It's not like, you know, you're Henry Ford and you have a car company and it's like, who's going to buy all these cars? Well, I better pay my workers enough so they could buy them. You have no motivation. I, I don't think, well, <laughs> I'm not going to impugn Henry Ford's character right now. But, um, you know, he had, besides being a wonderful person, I'm sure, had an economic interest in paying his workers enough to buy his cars. You, If you're buying a corporation with the intention of selling it when it's uh, stock value goes up because you laid off all your workers. You don't really have an interest in how well your workers are doing or how wh what they're up to once they're laid off. I mean, you just don't have an economic interest, and that's that's the system that's doing that. Uh, I mean, you have to be seduced by it, but pretty easy to be seduced by it, especially when you get so much money out of it. I mean, it's like you know, unbelievably tempting. You'd have to be a saint to resist. I think most people just don't have the opportunity. 